Good afternoon, everybody. We are continuing our program now. Uh, we're so excited to have Nicole Woods here as our guest lecturer to give a little context to the performance that Allison just treated us to. Uh, my name is Michelle Dezember. I'm the chief programming officer here at the Aspen Art Museum. And it's such an honor to be able to celebrate today Allison Knoll's work, the larger context. Thanks to Nicole. So let's start with a big round of applause to her. By way of a brief introduction, I'd like to give you some uh, background to Nicole's work. She is Assistant Professor of Modern and Contemporary Art History at the University of Notre Dame. She holds a PhD in Visual Studies and Critical Theory from the University of California, Irvine, and focuses her work on the neo-avant-garde, performance art, gender studies, and the history of photography. She's here to share with us some of her context of the performance that we saw today, um, which is related to a book project that she's working on right now, um, which is the first in-depth study of Allison's work. So we're very excited to have Nicole here today. Please join me in welcoming her to share her work with us. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. I am not great at holding a microphone and talking and advancing slides at the same time, so I apologize in advance if this is a little bit um, Wonky. <laughs> Louder. Okay. See? Thank you. <laughs> Anytime you can't hear me, help me. Let me uh, sh raise a hand. Um, I think people are kind of scattered around, so I don't know if they're actually in the room right now, but I did want to thank Heidi, Lauren, and Michelle for inviting me to the Aspen Art Museum to give a talk on Allison's fantastic score, Make a Salad, in the context of its original 1962 performance. Uh, it's wonderful to be here and breathtaking Aspen, but also as a historian, it's a unique and rare pleasure to watch live a performance that I have long studied and admired. Oh, all right. Good, because I'm terrible at that. I just thanked you too, you missed it. <laughs> Thank you anyway. <laughs> uh, selections of this talk come from a book project that Michelle mentioned I'm completing on Allison's practice from the late 1950s to the 1970s. And so what I've tried to do here today is to give you a sense of her overall artistic sensibilities from the period of Make a Salad, as well as demonstrate her remarkable influence as I see it on all artists, again, and as I see it, adopting food as a source material within modern and contemporary art from the 1960s to uh, the present. So first, I'll give a very brief history of the origins of the salad, and then I'll expand it to include later food-based works by Knowles and also um, by many others. On October 24th, 1962, during an evening of events by Fluxus, an itinerant and loosely defined group of experimental painters, musicians, composers, and poets based in New York and Western Europe, American artist Alison Knowles premiered her by now most celebrated score, Proposition 2, Make a Salad. Standing slightly center off stage in a small audience hall at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, Knowles composed a salad for the attendees with foodstuff collected in a pickle barrel throughout the day from a local market. Knowles did not offer a recipe for the salad, nor did she indicate the specific form or ingredients that such a salad should take. Rather, she provided an instruction that merely required an action to be completed. 
what fellow Fluxus artist George Brecht three years prior in a nod to musical notation termed an event score. Executed in the space of a cultural institution and under the auspices of a month-long exhibition organized by the innovative London gallerist Victor Musgrave, Knowles' intriguing instruction transformed into a consciously artistic, even melodic occasion, as we experience today. The sounds produced in the rhythmic chopping of vegetables, a sound so distinctive that according to the artist, you could hear, quote, every crack of the knife, end quote, indicated a rather radical gesture on her part. Which is to say, in the subtle mimicking of traditional instrumentation, Knowles undermined certain expectations of viewing. She refused to display what an audience might reasonably require, a discrete art object whose primary aim was visual stimulation and contemplation. Instead, she offered a common temporal durational experience extracted from everyday life, subjected to both spectral viewing and fleshy consumption. In a contemporaneous letter to Happenings artist and friend Alan Caprow, Knowles' husband and Flux's co-founder, Dick Higgins, provided a timely description of the memorable piece. And I'm quoting Dick here. At the end, we did Allison's very nice proposition, and what a marvelous aroma. At 4.30 AM, before the performance, we went to Covent Garden and bought the loveliest, freshest vegetables you ever saw. We got enough for 200 people, but there were only 100 there, since this was the day of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But what a salad. Everybody got some. All of the artists helped. All told, it was one of the finest evenings I've ever been involved with." End quote. As Higgins's recollection affirms, Knowles's action both marked the day of a Cold War showdown between Fidel Castro and President John F. Kennedy and concluded a series of Flux's performances with a public meal, demonstrating that artistic labor and communal, even political experience are not mutually exclusive. Decidedly modest, despite the multiplicity of sensations brought forth, including sight, sound, smell, and taste, the artist's isolation of an understated and often disregarded ritual of preparing food enabled her to draw attention to the biological, social, and aesthetic encounters of everyday life. Moreover, the pithiness of the proposition operated at the level of an imperative to make, opened a compositional space for the score's repeated manifestations. That the 1962 event was shared with a specific art public and with her fellow art performers, we see how Knowles shifted the presumed authority of the artist as sole author and in the art as object to the artist as live performer of multisensorial, even pleasurable experience. Unlike other conceptual artists of the era, such as Joseph Kossuth, who often privileged ideational procedures or ideas as such as paramount, to their actual material realization. Early propositions like Make a Salad instigated a career-long investigation of relational experiences using language and text, speech and action, body and sustenance, ritual and reflection. In one memorable event then, Noel sets the table, so to speak, I'm gonna keep the food puns. <laughs> Minimal, I promise. For a multimedia practice that troubles the divisions between art and life by ushering in the disruption of the very categories of taste, aesthetic, philosophic, gastronomic, in the post-World War II period. And in this talk, I'm proposing that Knowles' adoption of open-ended procedures using performance and ready-made, even edible materials, participates in and pushes forward the explorative grounding for other artistic projects that facilitate social interaction 
from the 1960s and beyond. In other words, she's a pioneer in many ways. <laughs> Throughout its history, Fluxus impresario George Machunas referred to the, its emergence as anti-art and the subversive vein of the historical avant-garde, especially futurism and Dada in Western Europe. This notion corresponds with his position that the end of art would be its total absorption into the practices of daily life. This is evidenced in his 1963 manifesto, which argued that Fluxus's etymology encouraged a revolutionary tide in art, one that would promote a living art, anti-art, or non-art reality. For Machunas, Fluxus's ontological status was social, not exactly aesthetic, and, it aimed, and its aims intended to circumvent both museums and the commercial art system. Equally important, if not more so, to the development of Fluxus's larger formal and conceptual concerns was Dick Higgins's 1965 designation of the term intermedia to encompass an exceptional disillusion of the disciplinary borders of poetry, music, composition, and visual arts practiced by Fluxus and happening arts of the time, and of course, I would argue, nearly all of contemporary art today. In Knowles's salad, we see, can see how her own investigation of intermedia and the event score expands Machunas's aim of activating a model of sociality, where the artist labors potentially more than a relay between an action and its completion. Knowles's score opens up the possibility of reading the work as a critique of the tedious character of life, of repetitive labor, of the relationship, especially between women and the maintenance of the self and the familial body, and by extension, the national geopolitical body. By proposing a simple meal in the context of art, Knowles highlights an accepted fact of living and cleverly addresses gender and the routinized performances one toils through or enjoys every day. Washing, cooking, eating, cleaning, etc. The paradox and generosity of salad, which hints at both private operations, what one performs usually in the home, and what Juliana Bruno calls a public intimacy, invokes domestic service in many forms, allowing the performance to operate beyond the traditional modes of art making. The evolution of Knowles' artistic labor from abstract and screen print paintings in the late 1950s and early 1960s, which were created largely in private, to everyday performances and notational scores for a broader public, reflect the ways in which we might conceive and even theorize her practice as a series of offerings that could be completed or not by the spectator. This shift might signal a tandem insight developed by Marcel Duchamp in The Creative Act, a widely cited essay that Duchamp presented in the spring of 1957. Here, our, here Duchamp argues against the autonomy of the artwork by recognizing the, quote, chain of reactions that accompany the creative act, end quote. Rejecting the traditional role of artists as a medium who channels intentionality through osmosis, Duchamp upended the raw state of an artist's personal expression other artists did as well, by way of a transference or conversion through the spectator, whom, he says, brings the work in contact with the external world by deciphering and interpreting its inner qualifications and thus adds a contribution to the creative act. With Make a Salad, we might add ingesting and imbibing to these qualifiers. The early proposition scores composed by Knowles are open-ended invitations that are in no way dictatorial. They exist as solo undertakings, collective performances, and or unintended compositions that can, and sometimes do, remain purely textual. 
The mere presentation at the most basic level in the form of a directive, as we see in Make a Salad, or in another important piece, Proposition 3, Nevea Cream piece, the singular creative act could instigate a further chain of reactions. But ultimately, what I want to make clear is that she discloses the contingent nature of the relationship between an artist and her public by noting that the connection is lively, unpredictable, subjected to context, location, and time, but not inevitably codependent. And I think this is critical um, in relationship to other artists who work in similar ways. The relationship, in fact, is one of choice. We, as participants in the performance today, could choose to watch the salad being made, to focus our attention on the forms and rhythms of chopping and tossing, to the seductive aroma of fresh vegetables. The inverse of this operation is equally true, in that the porous, suggestive quality of the proposition does not call for any specific reciprocation on our part. Indeed, we can refuse to both watch or eat. What is extraordinary to me about this work is the fact that if one chooses to participate, one can me me meditate excuse me, on it while performing the action for oneself, extrapolating the range of responses it can arouse. Knowles calls our attention to an action that one does mindlessly, arduous, routinely, yes, but the isolation of one's eating habits at once paying attention to our daily, daily labors and bodily needs is a key feature, not a bug. Indeed, the chance element of each performance and its indeterminate reaction by audience is one of its strongest elements. Recalling a staging of Make a Salad, this time in Copenhagen in 1963, Knowles found herself, quote, confronted by all of these angry Danes, end quote, gathering a particular ire from the head of the music school. Generating, I understand it, a particular ire from the head of the music school, who had actually funded the vegetables for the salad, whom the artist guesses, probably, I think they thought, maybe I was going to make something in a little bowl. Instead, Knowles prepared a salad for hundreds of people, as she has done multiple times since. And as we can see from the documentary evidence and from our own experience of it today, there is difference in repetition. No salad is the same. A work of art whose sole intention is to disappear any aesthetic remainders in the form of empty cartons, crates, inedible leftovers, holds little hope for transformation into a saleable art commodity, though some artists have figured out how to monetize these material leftovers. It must obstruct the audience at the time of its origination is not only odd, but outside any extant artistic category, which of course is exactly the point. Precisely because of works like Knowles' Make a Salad, cooking, drinking, preparing food, or critiquing the overlapping systems in which food is produced and distributed has become par for the course in today's contemporary art world. This includes the free food event staged by Rick Ritt in the early 1990s. More recently, Theaster Gates' Soul Manifesto Soul Pavilion of 2012 and to certain strains of the 20th century avant-garde and their exploration of art as a comestible activity. Art historian Hannah Higgins, wonderful, has tracked these earlier iterations of artists using food as a primary source and a subject of critique, including the work of the Italian futurists, whom in the 1930s invade against the gluttonous, unhealthy properties of pasta, a national dish that F.T. Marinetti regarded as mere culinary complacency. In a collaborative cookbook and in one of his many manifestos of the era, 
Marinetti forcefully advocated for innovative cuisine predicated on, quote, a brand new food combination in which experiment, intelligence, and imagination will economically take the place of quality, banality, repetition, and expense, end quote. And the futurist material is much more complicated, especially as it's tied to um, fascist aesthetics, so I will absolutely give you the citation to Hanna's work if you would like to, because it's really important. More parallel to Knowles, one of, can, of course, turn to later works for examples of artists pointing to food as art subjects in a performative way, including many works created in the late 1960s and early 1970s, including, and these I'm thinking of, Bruce Nauman's punning performance-based photographs like Eating My Words, in which the artist literally eats bread formed in the shape of letters, or Christine Kozlov's Eating Piece, which chronicles everything she ate from February 20th to June 12th, 1969, and like so much of her work of this era, quantifies her activities through the standard form of ritual writing, the diaristic documentation of her progress. Or Tom Marioni's social installation and performance, the act of drinking beer with friends is the highest form of art, which I agree. Uh, first staged at the Oakland Museum of Art in 1970, later moving to the San Francisco Museum of Art by the end of the decade or Bonnie Shirk's more precarious public lunch, in which she enjoyed an elegant meal among other tasks while sitting adjacent to a caged tiger eating a hunk of meat at the San Francisco Zoo in 1971. Or probably more well-known, architect-turned-artist Gordon Mata Clark, who was one of many spurred to action by the repercussions of social inequality in the early 1970s as they related to local and global food economies. The result? the founding in 1971 of Food Restaurant with Carol Godin, Tina Gerard, Suzanne Harris, and Rachel Liu in Soho. The restaurant aimed to address the reality of hungry artists in the immediate downtown community and also functioned as a performance theater, a unique collaboration with the participation of artists, poets, musicians, filmmakers, photographers, dancers, sculptors, and painters, which sounds a lot like Fluxus. The open concept dining area was designed by Mata Clark and provided a clear view of the kitchen and its inner operations. With a daily guest chef, typically an artist who was invited to design and cook a menu, Mata Clark and his interlocutors returned gustatory amusement and even indulgence with an internationally flavored menu that featured duck gumbo, rabbit stew with prunes, oxtail soup, canary pudding, and Syrian coffee. The examples could go on and on. More immediate to our focus today, Knowles' own multi-sensory, multimedia, multi-year performance, The Identical Lunch, whose score reads, a tuna fish sandwich on wheat, toast with lettuce and butter, no mayo and a large glass of buttermilk or a cup of soup. In 1967, the artist initiated a noontime meditation wherein she ate this lunch at the same time in the same place every day at Risk Foods in the Ritz Foods Diner in, Chelsea, in her Chelsea neighborhood. By 1971, the experimental composer and Knowles' studio mate, Philip Corner, reflected on the temporal durational rigor of her eating habit, noting the strict regularity of the scored food event. For Corner, the reenactment of Knowles' personal meal could be altered into a formalized performance score that he had proposed as a collaboration that they could investigate together. Their plan was modest. Over the course of an indeterminate period, each artist would eat the lunch at any locale that may offer the same combination of available ingredients for as long as each wanted to keep performing the score. 
The only condition established between Knowles and Corner was that each would faithfully record and share their experiences with the other. Over the course of the meals, various documents, such as receipts, notes, drawings, letters, photos, and other ephemera from these performances were collected by Knowles as encounters with the tuna fish on wheat toast and published in 1971 the journal as the Journal of the Identical Lunch, which will be on view, I understand, here at the museum in the final iteration of the ritual exhibition. While Knowles eventually tired of the lunch, once Corner became, in her words, obsessed with its repetitions, she did so with an acute recognition of how the conditions of her own noontime ritual had radically shifted. It was originally intended as a way to gather her thoughts and revive her creative energies as her two young twin daughters played at home or went to preschool. When Corner took over the piece, the impetus of it changed, and Knowles agreed that the practice indeed worked better as an event score for others to continue to examine. Before abandoning her personal habit completely, Knowles invited other friends, among them George Machunas and Shigeko Kubota, to perform the score at their leisure for the next two years. Limited edition graphic screen prints that Knowles created of friends performing the lunch circa 1970 elevated the ritual ready-made into the status of art as objects and procedures. Processes of doing, actions and attentive performances around private moments and community exchanges. Under enlarged portraits of friends performing the lunch, Knowles inserted real commercial trademarks, including the tuna fish label for the American company Starkist, putting her into conversation with other conceptual artists of the era, looking closely at various distribution systems that organize and discipline our daily lives. If Make a Salad is notable for its radical non-specificity, the identical lunch's score calls for the precise ingredients, indicates both a marked contrast between the works and a concrete affinity. Despite the combination of tuna fish buttermilk mayonnaise, the lunch itself does not call for a particular place or a predetermined length of time or any number of days in which to enact the work, nor is it ever an identical experience. The lunch score thus contains the contours of a conceptual path first worn in salad and the deliberate openness of the score itself, which enables the conditions of possibility for a variety of aesthetic and gustatory experiences, including the exploration of the provisions and processes of daily life to push beyond the gallery walls. In opening up the topic of food, self-maintenance, and consumption habits to factual procedures, Knowles provides a critical space of reflection for life as it is lived, and a myriad of economies, psychic, capitalist, cultural, political, and so on. In this way, her food-based works also correspond to economy of taste, in that it calls a set of practices into being through the processes of careful selection and indigestion. Digestion. <laughs> but that too, it's a good, it's a good slip. <laughs> With artists exploring and pushing food performance through the event score and other paradigms in the post-war era, we have to ask ourselves, where does the artwork actually reside? We might recall that the pivotal to these works is the notion of erasure itself. The artwork vanishes. Salads, tuna fish sandwiches, oxtail soups, Thai noodles are consumed and expelled. Even carrots are left to rot as we see in Fluxus artist Larry Miller's slab of 1970, which consists of Oops, sorry. There we are. <laughs> Which consists of carrots roughly equal to the artist's weight and size, strewn together and placed on the earth and left to wither away. Or Felix Gonzalez Torres's colorful candy piles, whose form and mass is tied to the ideal weight of his lover's body, and whose presence in the art space necessitates a taking or a refusal. 
With all of this vanishing, a paradox again remains. There is a concerted effort by artists to preserve and archive the means of their making in journals, texts, photographs, and films, their processes. On the one hand, the artists seem keenly aware of the ways in which consumer habits might petrify the experience of daily life and to mask commodified rituals often drained of meaning. And on the other, they offer a reversal of that emptying out by composing works that rely on the engagement of an expanded audience, one they can see or not see, asking us to consider the function and effects of our own rituals, including where our food sources come from, where we like to shop, how we like to eat, whom we like to dine with. In other words, the social and ethical choices around food that we make every day. While I don't have time here to explore as fully as I would like the many other food events staged by Fluxus, by Knowles, and others in the 1960s and beyond, that's a second book, <laughs> where fanciful, bountiful, and innovative meals were invented and consumed, I return to Knowles' food-based works in order to offer a provisional conclusion. By activating the generative capacity of the open score format, Knowles' early work sought to explore the intimate rhythms and habitual customs of everyday life, often on a profoundly corporeal register. She does this by emphasizing food itself as an object experience, and thus ultimately questions the very organization of distributed capital, revealing the effects of art that move beyond mere sustenance and conviviality into a realm of what I'm calling perceptual generosity. And working through such a generosity, even hospitality, Knowles' salads, soups, and lunches serve to augment the provisional and haptic conditions of living through a prolonged meditation on the economic and circulatory systems of the literal body and the body politic. Indeed, it can be argued that the continuity between the propositional score and the expanded ready-made is part of a larger concern of Knowles to address the phenomenon of global poverty, and the conditions of domestic labor by calling attention to the practice of eating itself, who eats and who doesn't, not only as a process of the body, but as a procedure for art. And it is precisely this attenuation which, for me, makes the work still relevant in 2018. In Knowles' hands, the institutional space of the concert hall, the festival, an elevated platform, or a museum rooftop is ripe terrain for potentially transformative experiences with artistic labor acting as a conduit that necessitates collaboration and examination and generosity. In my view, Knowles theorizes a serviceable, sociable artwork, one that highlights the procedures of daily life and provides a space in which to differently critique and unintentionally rarefy the conditions of that daily life by setting up an opposition between caloric sustenance and cultural sustenance, an effect that lays outside the purview of pure aesthetic taste. Thank you. Michelle, I, yeah, I'm very happy to answer questions, or if you just are done with your meal and want to go expel it, that's fine too. <laughs> we have to have a shit joke, I'm sorry. In the, in the spirit of fluxes. Yeah, Joshua. I'm going to give you the microphone because the um, filming won't be able to pick it up. Unless oh. How long did it take you to write that? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. It's an excellent question. Uh, the real answer is a decade. <laughs> um, the shorter answer is taking all this material 
at least the last three months and trying to extract as much as I could for um, uh, an audience of very smart people, museum goers who might not necessarily know anything about um, Knowles or Fluxus or what exactly was happening here today. Um, so it's a, it's a complicated question, but the work on Knowles itself has been a very long time in coming because it's taken going through various archives through everybody in Fluxus, her own archive, as you know, and, and, and Dick's archive, um, to sort of piece together this history. So this is, is not easy because Allison is, you know, also Allison, very unsentimental about keeping things. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's taken a while to piece it together. That was your exact question. But. It's not, it's, it's a question and an observation. Like, at the moment when um, the identical lunch was an identical lunch, tuna fish was this, like, cheap throwaway fish, super inexpensive. Now, it's a, actually a very expensive fish, and, um, you know, yeah, so that complicates matters. And I'm interested in how maybe that inflection affects some of the concept of the everydayness that you're thinking about. I loved your talk, by the way. It's an excellent question, and it speaks to that contingent nature, right? So not just of the materials, the food source itself, which for me is very particular about a politics of the 19, right, or let's say pre-war and even post-war period in which canned food, in fact, was um, the, 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 the food of the middle class. Right? I mean, it wasn't fresh vegetables like it is today. It isn't very expensive farmer's markets or very expensive tunas, right? It was considered a marker of solid middle class um, status to actually be able to go into a supermarket and buy all canned food. So that's a really fascinating shift because now we associate tuna or canned food in general with the poor, the working poor, and it's the stuff you give away. You know, it's just kind of this throwaway food, if you will, or we, we sort of use it if we have to or something, if you are sort of, a, of an aspirational class or something like that. But the tuna is a really important um, question because the, the mercury content, I mean, the, the oceans, the fisheries, like how much has changed. So part of the, this is why I can't, a lot of that can't exactly be explored in, the, in this particular book, although it's mentioned. A second book, I think, is nece necessary because I'm, I'm thinking of the identical lunch, in fact, as an off, as a sort of point of departure for thinking about ecologies and participatory um, space, the way in which we think about ethical relationships between our food and how artists, in fact, were specifically dealing with that, or at least attempting in some way. So the, the, the changing nature of the score is so beautiful and it captures precisely these historical, these class, these political, these national changes um, that, that for me again keeps it relevant. It doesn't feel ossified um, even though it's a work from the early 1970s. It feels like a work that is just fresh all the time because of these changing circumstances. Does that answer it? Yeah, do you have a follow-up? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, and then Karen will ask something. Yeah, I love your I'm sorry. I'm not um, so then my follow-up is um, Gordon Mata-Clark is sourcing the vegetables from food for food from, is it Mad Run Farm up in Vermont? And so there's this other side of it, just for the next project, that looks at the kind of sociality um, and the beginnings of the farm-to-table movement actually within the broader context that would include this. So that's kind of, I'm sort of feeding on your answer, but I think it's really interesting. 
that would be a, a lot of people are writing about food right now, the food restaurant, it's sort of having a moment. But I, I think that at least the, the writings and the material that I've seen hasn't, they don't quite want to go there, what we're talking about, I think. Um, farm to table, open concept kitchen. I mean, this whole thing is, is, is really interesting for that moment, for that particular way in which, again, food becomes, as it always has been, an incredibly vexed um, social reality. And the fact that he, and not just him, so of course he always gets you know, credited, but he has a series of collaborators. In fact, his partner, Carol Godin, is, is upfronting all of the money to run this, and it runs into the ground. They have no, you know, they have no way of really sustaining it because they're, they want to make it cheap enough so you can walk in and have an oxtail soup with Syrian coffee for two bucks or something, right? They wanted to feed the people that were local to their community, uh, which were artists. Okay, it's not this, as we all know, it's not the Soho of today, right? The early 1970s. And the artists could work there, and they did work there. Right, really important that they were, and and then I sh I didn't say this, um, but what's also fascinating about, oh, and I'll go back. That's okay. I can find it easily. About food, right? So you can see the open concept kitchen. You can see the fresh vegetables. Fulton Market was really important to them. Fulton Fish Market. Um, he and Robert Frank collaborate on a film that deals exactly with these distribution systems, like haggling with fishmongers and going down to the streets, um, talking to the farmers, et cetera, to, in order to sort of get this larger picture. Um, and you can see on the back menu, they would have every day a daily changing menu based on the ingredients that were fresh, freshly available. But this was also the site of Avalanche Magazine, so really important conceptual magazine, in which case they would have these conversations. Um, and where Anne Architecture and even Gordamata Clark's first cuts from so the first cuts actually happen in food so it's it's a really important work in many ways but I'm I'm really fascinated more and more with what I'm calling sort of as you know from from another participatory ecologies and like expanding this notion of ecology to include sociality but in a different in a different way Karen did you have a question I have a question and a, a comment okay so this is probably for Allison but maybe you know too. I moved to New York in 1979 in the fall, and food was still open in a different version. So do you know who took it over after Gordon Mataclark passed away? Who continued it? Carol Godin ran out of money um, by 1974. So she had to pull out. She was bleeding money for years. There were some other Suzanne Harris and Rachel Liu, there were some other sort of backers, but another completely different team took it over. It was still open, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, I mean, not only did he die, there was just the, the original collaborators just couldn't give, you know, it was a labor of love and they just couldn't give their labor, quite frankly, their free labor anymore, right? Yeah. So this goes back to um, Hannah's comment about how um, identical lunch has changed. Um, and um, this past, uh, academic semester, there was a program at California Institute of the Arts celebrating its 50th anniversary, um, which uh, explored Allison's project, The House of Dust, and Allison came and did some performances, and there were lots of classes that did performances, and a group of my students from USC collaborated with uh, students from CalArts, and we did a whole, you know, kind of day of performances. I had two Chinese international students who had selected the identical lunch as the 
as the project that they wanted to enact. And this just goes to tell you that there are cross-cultural, you know, kind of understandings and misunderstandings. So the two women who did this thought that the identical lunch meant that the sandwiches had to be produced identically. So they meticulously made miniature toasts, whole wheat toasts, and they filled them with spicy tuna sushi. <laughs> and presented them beautifully on a tray for, of like miniature little whole wheat sandwiches cut in half. Um, so it was the spicy tuna identical lunch. I thought, I thought that might amuse you. Yeah, which was, which was ahi tuna. <laughs> license for these pieces means that they can be interpreted. And the idea is to try to interpret them straight. Um, and I'm remembering that when the Museum of Modern Art did a month of lunches, you know, because you're the historian, I, I don't remember exactly when that is. It's like 2012. <laughs> but the, the fancy chef at the Museum of Modern Art read this instruction and interpreted it as tuna fish salad made without mayonnaise. Yeah, so so it was delicious, but it was ex it was a literal expression of this, but it was a fancy to butter no mayo. Yeah. yeah, that's right, that's right. Isn't that awesome? So I'm just wondering if Miss Knowles, if you've ever poisoned your audience. If my performance is to poison them, I haven't made it. <laughs> but but the, the notion of poison is really important. I mean, Andy Warhol did a whole series of tuna fish disasters, which was about these women who were who died from spoiled tuna fish. I mean, that there's there's a lot of different examples in which, yeah, we could call on to this issue. The booties. I mean, yeah. And just because we brought it up, um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, and it, it might be the interpretation that you were saying, but I'm curious um, the connection between the House of Dust and a performance like this. Is it, is it that the computer is, is like, I'd I, I just like both of you or either of you to speak to that connection. Oh, oh, okay, well then I'll just. Well, it's been my uh, pleasure to see performance art and pieces like this move into museums and galleries uh, because usually it's just paintings and sculpture and now uh, things have opened up so that a tuna fish sandwich on a wheat toast could become a piece of, of, of performance art. I'm, I'm so delighted with that. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to go through this lecture after doing the performance because at this altitude, it's, it's kind of yeah, speaks. Right. Maybe there's another you know event score in that somewhere. But um, 
I wanted to ask you in relation to the last question what your feelings are uh, about in terms of looking at the house of dust and the identical lunch and make a salad and the issue of interpretation. The, uh, the relationship of, of language to performance so that they, they all seem to have this language component which purportedly predates action. Although that, you know, is a little academic, but there's a language to action relationship that I see. What, what is your yeah. feeling? Yeah, I mean, can someone describe the house of dust? Do you want to? Yeah. 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 You were, you probably, you probably played in it. And you do it. Uh-uh, you do it. Um, the house of dust is a computer poem, one of the first ever. Um, created by Allison in collaboration with James Tenney. And she created a series of lists around a house, a lighting situation, a source for that lighting, um, inhabitants, etc. And they took the four lists that she created, these beautiful um, um, ideas, right? In Michigan, vegetarians, people wearing all colors, etc. that Allison came up with, and they put it through an IBM mainframe. Oh, thank you. Here we have it. Here is a printout. This is wonderful to have these people with here. Um, 10,000 pages before a single iteration uh, repeats itself. And so she creates the first digital poem. Um, and so I'm going to send it around here because Hannah so lovely shared, lovely shared it with us. Uh, a house of steel in southern France using natural light inhabited by French and German speaking peoples. But this is what has, to, this is kind of interest if anybody wants to see it. So it prints out and then out of that stanza, it's a really long and complicated story. This is an entire chapter in the book project. So I will just briefly say uh, in the context of brevity that, or in the spirit of brevity, I should say, that the uh, one stanza was selected for a Guggenheim grant she received the grant and she created these freestanding sculptures in her Chelsea neighborhood. Residents hated it, burned it to the ground, she got the job at Cal Arts, and she nego successfully negotiated to have them moved <laughs> um, to Cal Arts. And so at Cal Arts, these structures existed, um, and they would students would have performances. There's a pig roast, there's all sorts of really wonderful things around it. Yes, of course, absolutely. Your collaborator, Jim Tenney, absolutely. But the question about language is really important, of course. And I have personally always regarded Noel Allison as a visual poet, um, who is a visual artist, but also is so deeply implicated into the conditions of, of language that it goes beyond mere composition and into the realm of like narrative, but, but so pithy, and it's so minimal, and it's so direct. To Hannah's point about reading things straight and also just having these experiences, it could have these incredibly different iterations coming from the same simple sentence or right, score. Um, so that's a thread throughout the book that I link language in specifically. And so of course it's a, it's a historical question because it's tied to conceptual art. And, and, and what I would say to Allison, like, and, and I've had many times and even in the book, is that it's um, your work, Allison, that, and others who pioneered this kind of thing in which salads could be, right, in a museum space. Right? So it's not ending with you, it began, in fact, with Fluxus and proto-conceptualist work. And so it's not that we should sort of, well, we should be happy and grateful that the museum put this on, but really the generosity, right, should be reciprocal and that the conditions were set, I would argue, by you and by many others in order for us to understand this kind of work as a work of art. Right? That's the work that was done 
by artists, in my view, in the 60s and 70s, in which we can walk in today, see candy piles, take them, eat a Thai meal. It's, it means sort of, I mean, it means something, but it doesn't have the import because it, it wasn't, right, the first. And there's, there's often a problem with not only historical influence, but also credit, quite frankly, that maybe others are not interested in um, correcting, but, but I am. Well, I've never, <clears throat> I was not um, brought up in any feminist tradition. And as an early performer and into the Fluxus group, I was the only woman. And now I'm so delighted in my life to see that women have overtaken and indeed are equal partners in performance and in artwork as their male contemporaries. So, um, Oh. And did I thank uh, Joshua Selman for collaborating with me, not only here, but in New York, and uh, he helps me think better. <laughs> Michelle, do we have more time, or are we we're good? Okay. We can, I guess, end. We can break here, and then if you have questions, I'm very happy to answer them now or over email or anything. Thank you. Thank you.